You're listening to another episode of The Zag. Welcome back, and especially excited to have 2015 fellow Maya Paley is here, talking about all things work-life balance. It's good to catch up with her. Thanks for listening to The Zag. Let's get started. All right, Maya, tell me about your little one. How old is your is your child? He is almost 10 months old, which is crazy to say. Almost, <laughs> crazy. What's been the most surprising part about being a mom? Just how much I love it. I think I've always been such a career-oriented person, and I knew that I would like being a mom, but I'm in love with it. I'm in love with him, and it's more amazing than I could have ever imagined. That's awesome. And some of the folks who've also had kids who've been on the podcast before, I usually ask them, uh, what's your plan for raising a progressive kid? Obviously, 10 months old is different than if you know, four or five, six years old. But what is your uh, kind of overall approach you think you'll take to make sure your, your kiddo turns out to be a really good progressive? Yeah, I think it's definitely very important for me. And also being that he's a boy, or at least For now, that's what I'm assuming he is. Um, He might not be. Who knows? I'm just trying to think about ways that uh, to just educate him and inform him about what's going on in the world. I was raised in a very progressive family, and we talked about the news a lot, and it was just part of everyday conversation. So I just feel like it will be very natural and organic. Um, But I try little things, like I bought a little baby book called Feminist Baby. (laughs) And, um, you know, I'm trying to read him those kinds of books. A is for activist, all those books that you can read to babies. But for now, it's just about, um, it's it's more about thinking about down the line, how I'm going to bring him into into these realms and take him to protests and rallies and events and make sure that he's aware of what's going on in the world. And then do you think you'll have a philosophy or approach to media uh, consumption and TV and social media and those kind of things once he's of age? Um, for for the baby? Or like once, you know, four or five, six years old, when, when he gets to that age. Yeah. How do you think you'll approach what he's able to interact with, able to see as it relates to media content? I don't know. It's I, It's hard to think that far ahead, but I'm definitely going to make him listen to NPR all the time. Can tell you that, <laughs> and lots of lots of podcasts. I hope for sure that's true. Yeah, I think about that because you know when I was a teacher and I taught mostly fourth grade, you know, I was fortunate enough in some ways to be pre mobile phones and pre internet in the way that it is now, and pre social media and social media bullying and all those things. And I'm trying to think how I would have handled or reacted to being a, a teacher now with all those. Uh, realities going on. So I'm always curious, you know, talking to parents, what they feel like their yeah. approaches will well, end up being. One of the decisions that my partner and I made was to not put put our child on social media, which is very uncommon these days. But we, yeah. we believe that um, the child hasn't provided consent to have their existence, their face all over social media. And so we actually made a decision not to put him on there. Maybe we've posted one photo, but that's it. 
And it was a really hard decision to make because like everyone else, I am so proud of him. You know, he's so cute and I just want to post him everywhere. But we decided not to do that. And we don't know what he's going to want to do down the line, if he's going to want to have a presence on social media or not. And we don't want to make that assumption. Um, And, you know, I don't judge anyone for the decisions that they make. This is just the decision that we were comfortable with in our household. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the things we were talking about before we hopped on was work-life balance. Uh, So for folks that don't know, what is your actual work outside the home that you pursue when you're not raising your super cute and cool kids? So I'm the director of advocacy and community engagement at the National Council of Jewish Women Los Angeles. So I work on a lot of different issues. I I think that we focus on women, children, and families. And we're a progressive grassroots social justice organization. We've been around over 100 years. I've been here for almost six years now. Um, Most of my work, it's a lot of working with volunteers and also coming up with grassroots campaigns and working on state legislation and also local policy stuff. So we do a lot on um, reproductive rights and justice human trafficking, economic justice, and gender-related violence. Those are the primary issues that we work on. And so, yeah, yeah. and as you're putting together what your approach or strategy will be for work-life balance, being a new mom and doing such an important job, what kind of things have you thought about? What kind of things have, have worked so far? What kind of things have not worked so far? What kind of advice would you give to folks? I think that becoming a mom has really helped me think about what my boundaries are. And I've had to set limits that I never did. Never. I just never did that before. Before I was a mom, it was just, yeah, I can work anytime, weekends, nights, three nights in a row. And I just can't do that anymore. It's not because I don't want to. It's not because I don't care or because I'm any less passionate about what I do or about these issues. It's just because I also want to be a good parent and I want to be there for my son. And so... I try really hard to be home in time for bath time and bedtime. So I leave work earlier and I've made the commitment to leave work earlier and then to work from home after he's asleep. So I've had to readjust my schedule and the way that I work to do this. And then, yeah. And then being the progressive that you are, so now in this position of, of having a kid and balancing work, what do you feel like is the most progressive policy stance that progressives should be advocating for when it comes to work-life balance or maternity and paternity care? Yeah. Like, What kind of changes maybe in your policy recommendations would you make now that you're living well, this experience? Well, first and foremost, paid family leave, that's actually enough for people, enough money for people to actually take the leave. And I think that um, That's a big issue. California is one of the states that actually has paid family leave, one of the few states in the country. And it's amazing that we have it. And I sit on the steering committee of the California Work and Family Coalition, and we're trying every single year to expand it, um, both time-wise and expand job protection. And and actually, we just did get a, a bill through the state legislature, which I'm really happy about, that increased job protected time for smaller, for people in smaller businesses of 20 or more. But a lot of people don't know about these policies. And a lot of people don't take the leave because they can't afford, they can't afford to. It's only 
a little bit over half of one's pay. And so people who are lower income can't even take it. So to me, the first thing, first and foremost, is to, to really give people an opportunity to take paid family leave. Um, and I think that if we don't, if we're not giving people enough of their salary to be able to afford it, that's highly problematic. Um, I think that other policies like workplace policies are really important as well, like being able to work remotely sometimes, like being able to have a flexible schedule. I think that that's just part of um, finding, you know, providing ways for parents to both be good workers and good parents. Um, Yeah, things like that. Yeah, I, mean, I think you're definitely on something. I know for me, in the role I'm in now, which is able to to fund a lot of things that schools and teachers do to make schools great, one of the things I ended up focusing on was teacher retention, and especially of the teachers who are really high impact in the school and are in the classroom driving results with kids doing great things. So what are some things that schools could do to create a, a culture that keeps the lifestyle of teaching something that is doable for really awesome teachers? Because a lot of times you'll see uh, folks as they get in their late twenties, early thirties, when they do want to start a family, they have to oftentimes give up what they're really good at, which is classroom mm-hmm. teaching. And it's been great to see some school networks, charter networks, even the district as well approach um, sustainable teaching life in a way that I think is around a lot of what you're talking about, being more flexible on time or uh, providing high quality nursing pods at the school sites themselves, just to make it feel like um, it's a it's a warm space to be. It's a place you'd want to spend a lot of time in. You mentioned to see where this where this goes. Uh, do you feel like, as a, you know, California is a good example, but in states where it's not a good example, do you feel like it's mostly because states don't want to spend the money, they see it's too expensive, or they always want to err on the side of, of the managers' well, business a lot rather of these than policies, the workers? Like, what you know, are deemed job killers by the by the, by the right wing. And so they, these, these policies get killed off the bat um, without, without being given a fair shot. And I think that most people support these kinds of policies across the board. Um, we're just not going to be able to really get to a place in which everyone has equal access to all types of jobs and careers until until we make these policies happen so yeah makes sense i don't know for me i mean the other the other big thing i think is childcare i think childcare is extremely expensive and we're falling way behind other developed countries and so a lot of unfortunately it's still the case a lot of women, a lot of moms are dropping out of the workforce or taking time off and then they get far behind and that increases um, the likelihood that they'll have, they'll, there will be a big, you know, that increases the, the gender wage gap, increases or decreases the likelihood that they'll have the same level of jobs as men who are in the same fields that they're, that they're in. So until these policies become standard, we're going to continue to see you know, gender wage gaps and women, um, a lack of women in these high role, in these high positions in all industries. Yeah. True. 
Um, listen, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about your work. I'd love to hear how things have changed post, post-Trump. Uh, thanks for listening to The Zag. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Yeah, Maya, because you're doing advocacy work and a lot of community work, what kind of changes have you seen post-election? Mm-hmm. And how people receive your work or what kind of work they want you to do? Well, I've definitely seen an influx of interest. So actually, when I came back from parental leave, which was in May, because of that that high level of interest, I started doing this weekly email called Five Actions of the Week. And that gives people a chance to just do something from their own home. They could do just one action, which takes, you know, one to five minutes, or they could do all five. I think that people are really um, people are really looking for a way that they can do something, that they can take action to stop all of the craziness that's coming out of the Trump administration and Congress. Um, and but people don't have a lot of time. So I'm trying to provide people with a very easy way that doesn't take a lot of time, that's very accessible to anyone. That's been one change that that I've implemented since coming back and since the new administration. Um, I also, I run these advocacy training workshops on Sundays once a month for six months and six months, and we're in the middle of it right now. And there's, there's more interest in that. Um, There's definitely just a lot more interest. Our, our advocacy committee has grown in numbers. Our lists have grown, and I think that people want to be more active. I also, on the flip side, I see that people are already burning out, that it's it's a lot to ask of people to take action every week, and people are getting exhausted, and that concerns me a lot because we have a long road, a long fight ahead of us. And do you have a sense of people, are they fired up because they feel part of the resistance and so they're in their moment they're trying to resist something or do you see more of a sense of people pushing towards uh, a political outcome that will change the circumstances so they really are jazzed to to vote themselves and encourage other people to vote in certain types of candidates where do you see the most energy going into from from my from from my standpoint or from my in my work i'm seeing more of people who are interested in the resistance and being part of that. Um, it's tough. People are have lost a lot of hope. So they're trying to look for what can they do to bring them some hope to feel like they are part of something. So that's kind of more the vibes I'm seeing from over here. Um, and then when you, you know, I was going to ask, when you think about upcoming elections, whether it's 2018 or even in our state with the governor's race or those kind of things, like, what do you, what do you want to see happen? Like, what do you want to see large voter turnout? Do you want to see new voter mm-hmm. turnout? Like what is like the most appealing outcome for you at, at this time? Is it like a, a total change of the guard and the left pushes a change election in the same way the right did? Like, what, what do you think would be the best outcome for us? Yeah, I think that it, the best outcome would be for the, for progressives to take, to take over Congress. Um, I think that working on voter turnout is key because progressives come out in smaller numbers in, um, non-presidential election years. So I think that's going to be key. And I think that we need to see everyone show up. Um, 
you know, people from all backgrounds, all socioeconomic, all socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's that would be ideal. I think I'd like to see a lot more progressives in Congress than we have now. But I'm also I look a lot to the state and to local politics and local um, electeds. And I'm very grateful to live here in Los Angeles, to live here in California, where we can get a lot done on the local and state level and really be pioneers in many ways and impact the rest of the country with what we're doing here. Maybe last question on this point. Do you feel like people are going to be most motivated to vote if it's around issues of of stopping something from happening? Or do you feel like they'll be most motivated if it's a chance to enact something, whether it's enacting healthcare in a way that gives everybody healthcare or it's enacting uh, a tax policy that uh, is an investment in the future rather than ensuring rich people get richer? What do you feel like is going to be the most motivating message for progressives to use? That's a tough question. I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what will motivate people. I, you know, I think that people are looking for leadership. People are looking for, um, yeah, people are looking for leadership. And I think that that's key right now is, you know, there's just seems to be, um, there are a lot of leaders on the progressive side, but we're, but I think people are looking for who's going to actually be able to take on the current administration and really get through policies that are really aimed at helping people. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Who knows? Um, You know, last thing I want to ask you, we just finished over the weekend, the final round interviews for the 2018 NLC class and deliberations and all that good stuff. And we'll make those announcements soon. What do you, remember about applying to the fellowship when you did or what do you remember about the 2015 fellowship experience for yourself applying to the fellowship was scary (laughs) the process (laughs) was scary with all the different types of interviews and the group interview and the one-on-one and yeah oh that was intense that was serious um i loved the fellowship i i loved all the people in our group I loved hearing what people had to say and learning from each other and really debating and talking and growing together. Um, I loved how we each had an opportunity to, you know, talk about an issue that we're dealing with and gain support from everyone else and, and talk it through. I think that the fellowship is is a fantastic way for people to find community, progressive community in Los Angeles. Um to meet people who have, who care about the same things, who are passionate and also very active in progressive issues and advocacy. And um, yeah, I just, I really enjoyed it. And I think that for me, it was, it was a great experience. Nice. Good to hear. Listen, it was a great experience having you on. Thanks for joining us. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of The Zag, you can find all past episodes, and there are a lot at this point, which is great, on iTunes or in Google Play or on SoundCloud uh, or on our website, la.newleaderscouncil.org slash media. Stay tuned later in the week. We'll have some more Zag episodes up for you. Thanks for listening.